Happy Holidays from the DSR Network. We are deeply appreciative of our members and the year that we've had. To celebrate the holiday season, we are offering a 50% discount on either your first month or first year of membership. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the members-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of December, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month or for the first year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRHOLIDAY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRHOLIDAY. Thank you very much for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. It's that time of the week when we talk about matters that have to do with the intelligence community. It's the DSR Spy Show. I'm one of your co-hosts, David Rothkopf, and I am joined today, of course, as always, by uh, my partner in crime here, Mark Polymeropoulos. How are you doing, Mark? David, good to see you again. We missed you last week. As uh, listeners would know, I brought you a black and white cookie from a bakery in New Jersey, and then uh, I showed it on air and it was half eaten. So you never would have gotten it anyhow. Yeah, that's kind of disgusting, Mark, and a little gritty. And uh, uh, frankly, I, I would have liked I would have liked that. I was having, uh, as they say, technical difficulties. I was able to watch but not hear the podcast for reasons that I do not know. Our guest today, we are delighted to say, is Alec Plitzis, who is a non-resident senior fellow with the Middle East Program N7 Initiative, a partnership between the Atlantic Council and the Jeffrey M. Taupman's Foundation, working to strengthen and deepen Arab-Israeli normalization. He completed his federal service as the Chief of Sensitive Activities for Special Operations and Combating Terrorism in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, where he oversaw policy and operations for compartmented plans and programs. Welcome, Alex. Thanks very much. You can tell by the length of the title how far down the uh, the pecking order you are. So that doesn't fit on a business card and it gives you any idea. I, it was one of the first <laughs> things I learned when I got into the government, that the longer your title, the less powerful you were. Sure. My title when I got into the government was Deputy Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade Policy Development. And it was like, oh boy. Uh, sounds like a thesis statement. <laughs> it was exactly. It was like. Oh. Was there an acronym for that? Did you have some kind of a shorter way to say that? Yeah, uh, no. It was <laughs> it was humiliating from from beginning to end. Uh, anyway, Alex, uh, good to have you here. Obviously, a lot to talk about that is in your realm of interest. And to start us off, Mark, let me ask you: Would you have a first question for Alex? Sure. First of all, I just want to say thanks to to Alex for coming on. I am delighted. Um, you know, he's, he's, uh, in my kind of post U S government, you know, you know, journey, he's, uh, someone that I met, um, and, and, and we'll talk about it later on. Uh, but I'll just say that, you know, it's, it is, it is inspiring to me 
Um, and I hope that's the case for myself as well, is when, when someone does kind of their best work after their government career, it does really meaningful stuff. And I think that that's what Alex has done. We but have a lot of faith, me, Mark, that that's going to happen for you. Uh, well, <laughs> that, that remains to be seen. Yeah. Um, but let me just throw one more title in um, for Alex's career, because he was also detailed from the Pentagon to the intelligence community, representing the Secretary of Defense as a senior member of the White House uh, hostage policy review team. And I think that's where we should start because of current events. Um, going on in, uh, you know, with Israel, uh, and Hamas and Gaza. And, and given your previous role with the, with the USG, um, regarding hostage recovery, you know, give us your thoughts on what has transpired so far. So many things that are happening in Doha between the, in- the intelligence services, what's happening within, you know, uh, it, it, you know, within the White House, um, on, on an issue that, let me just remind everyone is not only important for Israel and the emotional, um, toll of hundreds of hostages. There's also still eight Americans that are being kept hostage. So. Alex, what are your thoughts? Sure. No, I appreciate it. Um, you know, been, I got sucked back in the hostage space a couple of years ago, really starting with Afghanistan. So I've been, been dealing with um, a number of Americans who've been detained. We've gotten some released since and assisted in doing so, along with some British nationals. And then there are still more who are detained now. And so that kind of kind of pulled me back into the space a little bit. Um, and both in the case of Afghanistan, uh, as well as with what, uh, you know, the hostage situation in Israel uh, you know, the IC has taken an incredible lead uh, in a lot of the, uh, the policymaking, decision-making strategy. Uh, Ambassador Burns has continued to play his role of, you know, intelligence professional uh, and uh, global diplomat uh, extraordinaire who has engaged, um, you know, with some of the most difficult uh, personalities around the world. I mean, I saw him not that long ago at the, uh, at the dinner in Washington, the OSS dinner, in which he told a story. Actually, I think it was, uh, no, it was actually a uh, former director Tennant who told the uh, the story about um, you know, he having to engage with Yasser Arafat in uh, negotiations over something over, you know, trying to get the latest uh, wave of violence to stop. And he's on the phone with Bill Burns at three o'clock in the morning, basically helping him craft the language for this. So we have a very experienced CIA director who's been doing this for a long time, and it's been fantastic to watch. Uh, in terms of what's going on in Israel specifically, it's by far the most complicated hostage situation I've ever seen in my, my short professional career, uh, either personally or having to, you know, study about in terms of getting up to speed on how things work when you know, initially taking over that portfolio. 200 hostages taken roughly about by Hamas, another 40 or so uh, from PIJ, and then somewhere in that mix. Um, on the day of the attacks and the opening of the fence, you had 2,500 people cross the border to engage in one of the largest and most heinous terrorist attacks in Israeli history. Largest number of Jewish civilians killed in a single day since the Holocaust. It's obviously very impactful psychologically to the Israelis. And then on top of that, Hamas decided that they were going to uh, you know, take this extraordinary number of hostages. And you had these local criminals who also pulled people back. So the complexity of the situation is not only the number of countries involved, uh, the fact that multiple groups are involved in taking them, which means there's multiple decision makers on the release point in most cases, which is the first thing you want to establish, who has these people, who has the authority to release when you're trying to figure out who to negotiate with. Um, And then you have it in basically what's a non-permissive denied area to a certain extent, because there's no friendlies inside anywhere. You've got nothing. And so when you approach the situation, people will say, hey, you know, what about hostage rescue? We've got all this negotiating going on. Where's you know, where's the, uh, you know, cavalry over the horizon and the helicopters like out of a bad movie. It's not going to happen for a whole host of reasons. So first of all, it's a densely populated urban area. It's within the top 25, but it's not the most populous that that phrase is, is used, but it's not necessarily correct in terms of Gaza's density. But inside you have no ability to do Kazavac, you know, ground on for casualties, no medevac ability to bring helicopters in. They still have shoulder fired missiles, you know, uh, man pads. They have, um, you know, uh, RPGs, small arms that can hit several thousand feet. So, you know, that's your Black Hawk down nightmare scenario you're talking about in terms of threat to helos coming in. Uh, and over the beach incursion is unlikely. And then given the size and distribution of the hostages in a 500 kilometer tunnel system underground, plus buildings above ground, 
have to have accurate intelligence as to where everybody is. So trying to conduct simultaneous clandestine hostage rescue operations all throughout Gaza for over 200 people is just really, it's a non-starter from an operational perspective. So the right decision was made to, to engage in negotiations. And I think the IC very early on identified the right actors. The negotiations started taking place in Qatar. And then, you know, very smartly, there was an ask, hey, give us a couple of people, let a couple of people go. And then we saw two trickles in the beginning of two women coming out in two groups. And what that at least told us is that the people they're negotiating with have the power to release the hostages. So they're negotiating with the right folks. The only other thing that you can ascertain by actions only, and I'll stop after that, is that this wasn't a, a group or a cell of five to 10 guys who were like, hey, we're done raping, pillaging, murdering, and torturing. So let's just take whoever's left alive because we're out of bullets. That's not what happened. There were hostages that were taken from across southern Israel, from kibbutzes and towns and villages and wherever else that they happened to get them from, and in massive quantity. And since we know that the preparation of the attack for what's come out uh, you know, afterwards was that they would meet once a week, almost like a National Guard unit, like once every other week for an hour, they would go in and do their battle drills. In the morning of, they all got phone calls and said, hey, come in if you haven't gone to morning prayers. And then the individual groups were given their targets. And they weren't in communication with one another. They were in communication with Gaza. So what that tells us was this was not a spur-of-the-moment decision. And it also wasn't a decision that was coordinated on the fly between multiple groups. They had to have been given directions ahead of time to purposefully take hostages based on the conditions I just laid out. So what does that tell us? Why would Hamas want to go ahead and take that many hostages. It tells us that they knew that their intentions were to conduct a spectacular attack, which would then uh, draw a massive IDF response to what they were doing. So they knew the severity and the barbarity that they were about to engage in, and they were going to need something to help mitigate the military advantages that Israel possesses in terms of infantry, or, no, sorry, well, yeah, proper infantry, armor, artillery, air support, everything else. And the way you do that is by taking 200 civilian hostages, because we've seen the, you know, the absurdly lopsided swaps in the past. And the, uh, you know, Hamas or the other groups will say, hey, that means that our folks are more important because one of our lives is worth 3000 Israelis. And the Israelis will say it the other way around. Actually, our people are so important that if you just want, you know, you know, one of your guys, you know, a couple thousand people back, we don't care about them. Give us our people because they're more important. So that's the that's the conditions and the, and the background that was kind of set for the situation that we're in right now. So how'd that work out? I mean, you know, here we are, we're looking at this thing. There have been some hostages released. There have been 20-odd hostages killed. Israel has gone in big time. They are now intensifying that in the South. Um, and they're likely to continue doing that for another four to six weeks. Um, uh, you know, what's, what do what you, as you look at the changing situation on the ground, what do you think that means in terms of the hostages? So I think it's clear that Hamas took them for the purposes of having bargaining chips, right? So they weren't taking them for the purposes of making execution videos, at least that wasn't their original intent. So if we're going by that, because they wanted that, those folks to mitigate the advantages, and we're seeing it now, that's the reason they were willing to engage in swaps, because they want things, that they at least see a value to maintaining the hostages alive to try to get something, right? That doesn't mean every group of wingnuts who cross the fence to go do and engage in criminal heinous activity is going to follow the same. And there's different ideologies between PLFP, between Islamic Jihad, between Hamas. So it's not clear that all the groups will follow the same, but the bulk are still with Hamas, right? So with the military operation proceedings, you mentioned, it'll likely go on the ground side until at least the end of January. Uh, they cut the strip in half. They moved down the Mediterranean from the north, right, to basically seal off the, uh, the from the sea. They had a southern line of advance that was created between Wadi Gaza and Gaza City, effectively the halfway mark through the Gaza Strip. They have the uh, massive billion-dollar wall to the, to the east. 
And then to the north, they basically had two avenues of approach outside of Gaza City. So they basically created what we call a giant cordon in military terms around the metropolitan area of Gaza City. And then they're engaging in systemic search operations, mainly moving from the west eastward into the city, which is why we saw the hospitals were the first places that were visited that was all over the news. And they, they still have to proceed. They've now commenced operations doing something very similar in Khan Yunus, one of the other metropolitan areas, smaller than Gaza City, to the south of Wadi Gaza, as they move further south towards Rafah and towards the gate with Egypt. In doing so, they've shifted 2 million, you know, 2 million people altogether down into southern Gaza. It's about 2.2 million people total, 1.1 north of Wadi Gaza, 1.1 south, give or take. And so you have them there amongst stressed infrastructure already, plus the, the damage from all the bombardments and everything else. So you've got a massive humanitarian you know, crisis on the ground and also a lot of civilians. So it's going to limit the amount of air power that can be used in a particular area just due to the risk of injuring civilians. And it also increases risk of the ground troops. But what all of that also does is now continues to squeeze the area in which Hamas is able to operate. And they basically end up becoming like cornered rats at some point where the hostages are with them and they're moving them, you know, you know, to areas where they're not going to get hit for the most part because they're looking to trade for them. But at the end of the day, there has to be sort of a re-engagement and a recognition um, that, that the hostages still have value and that they want something back for them. Where things broke down is that the, you know, the Hamas was supposed to produce a list of 10 every day, 10 hostages they were going to hand back over. They had an agreement that they were going to give back all the rest of the women and children. Men and soldiers would be a separate discussion, probably higher value for prisoners than they were getting already. They were also supposed to provide the Red Cross with access to all the hostages. That didn't happen as well. And for, I believe, for a few reasons. The administration alluded to it, but it, there was obviously, uh, you know, there's a lot of evidence of sexual assaults that have taken place. Um, and then some of the torture that had taken place as well with women and with children. And if you listen to any of the online spaces or watching the reactions from the Arab street and particularly from the, the pro Hamas crowd, they seem to draw some sort of moral distinction between the raping and the torturing and the, and the stuff with little kids, because that to them is beyond the pale. But murdering 1,200 people seems to be okay. That's where they draw the line is when you, you need to get into that. So the people that are left have evidence of some of that taking place, right? The, this is the female soldier that we saw who, whose sweatpants were taken and bloodied, and there was obviously an illusion that there had been sexual assaults that had taken place, not confirmed, but at least you know evidence and suggestions that's what happened, amongst a myriad of others. Um, and then who knows how many are still alive to. Unfortunately, we keep getting trickled information that some of the hostages have been killed. Hamas will usually blame Israel, Israeli bombardment. And then people say maybe they killed them. So there's there's a complex situation in terms of hostages having information that they don't want released. Some of them might be dead. Hamas not wanting to reveal locations. They don't want to let the Red Cross in. And then Israel basically saying, until you produce a verified list of people that we know we're going to get out, this is this is a charade and you're basically trying to stall for time. So I think it's going to take Hamas basically having to re-engage and say, hey, you know, we're willing to do this again. And Israel, at least from what's leaked, has basically determined that the military pressure that was put on Hamas in the northern part of Gaza and the bombardment that was sustained for so long was the causal factor in getting them to seriously negotiate to get back to it. And when they stopped doing that and started getting, you know, cute or smart, for uh, you know, for lack of a better term, with the Israelis in response to their action, they said, all right, if you want to play that game, we're going to turn the military power back on until you feel enough pain that you come back to the table. So I think that's where we're at in the process right now. Let me let me ask you a, a quick question, kind of overall, because I think that you know it, you know you you uh, participated in kind of this this hostage you know recovery apparatus, um, but but it's something that actually evolved over time. Can you get a you know and think back to all the way you know with of course the, the tragedy of the Iranian hostages, um, but even always you know moving up through various administrations. I mean, the U.S. government has created kind of a different bureaucratic apparatus that seems to work. Can you give us a sense of that evolution and and kind of the last piece, you know, what you saw when you were in the seat? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, um, you know, early on, it was a very disorganized, disaggregated, uh, you know, within the community in general, between the Department of Defense, the IC, 
Um, you know, depending on the, the nature of the hostage taking, um, you know, the FBI is usually the lead because it's a criminal uh, offense to take a hostage, right? And then the State Department being uh, the lead abroad because the, the ambassador is the president's senior representative of the United States government to a particular country, and therefore it's under the State Department purview if you're going to engage with a foreign entity. But we really end up with a couple of different things. You mentioned, right? So we had the Iranian hostage crisis with the embassy and, you know, in 79, everything that happened there. And so you've got a couple of different things. You have uh, unlawful state detention, right, where they're basically uh, unlawfully holding somebody, you know, for uh, for the purposes of quasi, like a quasi hostage shaking, basically what Russia is doing now, you know, with Wall Street Journal reporter and, and a number of others where it's completely, you know, ridiculous. Then you have a, uh, a state detention that's valid, right? Somebody's been detained in North Korea or somewhere else because they did something incredibly dumb, right? Uh, you know, that, that's not a, a hostage taking event. And then you have a, a criminal hostage taking, which is where, you know, somebody's holding someone for ransom, they want money. And then you end up with a terrorist, uh, you know, hostage taking where they're not necessarily looking for financial compensation in return for what they want. They would like to see uh, a policy change of some kind. And they've chosen to use hostage taking as a form of terrorism, as a tactic to try to influence their their uh, target audience uh, to get that policy action or inaction that they want. So that's kind of the different categories they fall into. And the, the, the terrorist hostage taking was always the one that was the worst, you know, because the way people were treated, but it was usually far and few between. It wasn't as, as often as people thought. And there's a lot of people unlawfully detained, which is the lar larger category. After all of that took place, Admiral McRaven was actually Captain McRaven at that time at the White House as a fellow in 2000. And when he was there, he determined at that point that there was no policy document that had been codified or anything updated in any recent form that he could find. And so he wrote the initial presidential strategy and governing document for uh, dealing with hostage taking when he was at the White House. And that was in 2000, right? So that was the main document and source of governance and guidance for quite some time. And then in 2014, uh, ISIS began a campaign, obviously, to try to recreate a caliphate in their minds. And th at the same time, they began taking a number of hostages. And in doing so, they weren't just holding them for a policy concession. They were also using the, the hostage taking as a means of inducing terror and, and, uh, um, uh, and intimidation with civilians, not only the people who were enduring the suffering, but then releasing the videos to further sort of terrorize everyone to, to get their, get what they wanted, which is a caliphate, get America out of the Middle East and whatever other demands that they had. And there were particularly gruesome videos, which we had to watch. So there was the beheadings. At one point, they burned a Jordanian pilot to death, literally, uh, you know, using gasoline in a cage, uh, just barbaric activity. And so there, there was a general recognition that we haven't revisited the policy in a decade and a half. Uh, we've had a lot of advancement in terms of our counterterrorism uh, strategy and, and, uh, and its employment in a number of cases, both from Middle East and Central Asia, Africa and, and Asia Pacific in some cases. And so basically the White House came together, it was Lisa Monaco, uh, along with a few others who said, hey, we really need to relook this. And they turned to NCTC and said, hey, Lieutenant General Bennett Sakalik, who was a director there, former Delta commander, former uh, JSOC deputy, I want to say, I think he was the ops, ops lead maybe at SOCOM, uh, but very seasoned guy, very, you know, very smart, uh, somebody pretty well respected in the community. You're going to take the lead. And then they asked for interagency leads from CIA, FBI, state, uh, treasury, um, uh, joint staff. Uh, Office of the Secretary of Defense, and a handful of others, which then grew into like a group of almost 200 at one point when you bring in all the little experts from the different places. So basically, we went through, we reviewed all the existing documents, we reviewed where the issues were. There was a lot of bureaucratic infighting, mainly between the State Department and the FBI, because uh, the FBI would tell you, we're the lead, it's a criminal case, and the State Department would tell you, well, overseas, we're in charge because we're the, we're the, the designated lead in a foreign country. And in some cases, the White House then started, you know, talking to hostage families and, uh, you know, I remember getting an email at one point saying, hey, is there some rescue operation going on? I called down to Virginia Beach. I called down to, to Bragg 
talk to you know to blue and to green and lead uh, headshot. Like, what are you talking about? We don't even know where the hell they are. What do you mean rescue operation? And you know, comments from you know senior policy officials. Oh yeah, don't worry, we'll have them back by Christmas. Really, really not a great thing to do with a family who's suffering at that point. Trying to give them some hope. And we realized we had a problem or we'd have, you know, FBI agents in the living room and the State Department's calling on the phone, giving different information. Like it just became a, a cluster and a problem. And also there was no real advocate. So there was a decision that was made, a recommendation out of our committee or our, our, um, our, our review team to create a special envoy for hostage affairs, which is now Roger Carstens. It was Robert O'Brien, who then became the National Security Advisor uh, during the previous administration. Um, and also to create what we call the HRFC, the Hostage Recovery Fusion Cell. So an interagency intelligence cell that's put together specifically to fuse hostage-related intelligence information to make sure everybody's on the same page. So those were the two main um, recommendations from an operational perspective. And then we rewrote the, the strategy and the governing documents for hostage takings and how to respond to them. Interesting. I'd like to pick up on some areas that don't directly pertain to hostages, but uh, we'll do this after we take our break, in which we say to everybody, who is uh, listening, but who is not a member, this is when we've got to say bye-bye. And thanks for joining us. And if you want to be able to listen to the entire podcast, it's pretty simple. You just become a member. You go to the dsrnetwork.com. You click on membership. It's about five bucks a month. It all goes to just helping us to be able to provide good programming like we do. Uh, and as, uh, as, uh, as you know, for the past uh, several years, it's been growing and growing and growing. Uh, with more offerings, and that's going to continue into the next year. So this is a really good time to go become a member. Uh, however, if you're not a member now, we're going to say bye-bye. And if you are a member, we're going to say stand by.